The Take on Duchenne podcast is dedicated to educating and raising awareness of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, or DMD, a rare and progressive genetic disease affecting muscle function. We bring scientific leaders in the field of DMD together to discuss and share knowledge, insights, and perspectives to support the continuous education and awareness of this disease. This series is brought to you by PTC Therapeutics, a global biopharmaceutical company focused on improving patient lives who are affected by rare diseases like DMD through innovative therapies, earlier diagnosis, and improved standard of care. The information presented in this podcast is intended to be general in nature and is not medical advice. This should not replace or substitute speaking with a healthcare professional. If you are a patient or caregiver, consult your care team with any questions or concerns regarding medical conditions. Hello, my name is Jonathan Blaze. I'm a medical science liaison at PTC Therapeutics and the host for this podcast. I'm very excited to discuss the topic of nutrition and Duchenne in this episode with our guest, Dr. Kindan Fawcett, owner of The Dietitian Doctor. Welcome, Dr. Fawcett. It's a pleasure to have you here for this discussion. Thanks, John. So glad to be here. Briefly explain why you are passionate about Duchenne and nutrition. Absolutely. So clinically and research-wise, I find it fascinating. We have done very little research in the U.S. on how nutrition really, really affects the DMD and Becker population. But personally, my kiddo, Tyler, has DMD. He was diagnosed at five. He's 12 now. And he is why this is one of my big, big research interests. How does nutrition relate to Duchenne? Could you contextualize the association? Yes. Nutrition is a super, super important part of everyone's life. We are, you know, the old adage, we are what we eat. So when we think about how it affects our bodies, what we put in is what we're going to get out of it. These boys have several deficits in terms of calcium, vitamin D, some protein deficiencies sometimes. So nutrition is so important on the front end to get the right food in to maintain a healthy weight and also make sure we are getting those micro and macronutrients as as they move along their process. And could you provide an overview of the data or information speaking to the importance of nutrition in Duchenne? Absolutely. As I said before, we don't have a lot of hard science in the actual nutrition process. There are some researchers that have done some great things in Australia and the U.S., but we know that we need the same nutrients, micro and macro, that the everyday general population needs, with a couple of exceptions. So these boys, young men, and the occasional young woman need extra vitamin D, for bone health. And with vitamin D, we also need to really, really watch calcium. And it's very interesting to me. A lot of kiddos these days in general don't get enough calcium because they don't drink milk like they used to. So really thinking about getting extra calcium supplements into these boys. Additionally, making sure that the food we are getting in their bodies is high quality, complex carbohydrates, lean proteins, and making sure that we're getting enough fluid to do all the things our body needs to do. What is the role of a nutritionist in the multidisciplinary team? Oh, goodness. 
How much time do we have? Uh, so, okay, the dietitian or the nutritionist, depending on your licensure and the state that you're in, depends on the the role that you've created within the team or the role that the team has created for you. I feel it is an integral part. In our in our clinic, I feel as valued as any other member of the team. We function as a unit. It's very cohesive and it's going in and talking to the parents. And sometimes this is a hard, hard thing because with nutrition, we have a lot of social implications and a lot of emotional implications that can come into play, if you will. So sometimes that first initial meeting is pretty tough, if you can think of it like that. But just being there to support the family as they move through this journey, as there are several things that actually inhibit a healthy nutrition pattern within this disease. Are there differences between a nutritionist and a dietitian that parents or caregivers should be aware of? Yes. A dietitian is a person who has had an undergraduate degree in nutrition, has gone through an extensive dietetic internship, and has become credentialed and certified through a national board test. So yes, there there are a few differences. And when parents are looking at that, I urge them to seek out someone that has the letters behind their name, RD, LD, RDN, things like that to separate somebody that is just reading you a paper and telling you they saw something versus someone that has been trained and is fluent in this discipline. What are some of the hallmarks that a clinician would look for uh, indicating poor nutrition in a child? That is a great question, John. You know, and I think everyone is different and every kiddo is different. So as a clinician, whether you're a medical practitioner, a physical therapist, a dietitian, you have to look at it from your scope of view. When I go in, I can most certainly tell how a kiddo looks by just their physical appearance. Is their skin very, you know, buoyant? Does it pop back up if I push on it? How do their eyes look? Do they look bright and happy or are they kind of glassy and kind of drawn? You know, if a kiddo has an overnutrition, they will be overweight. So the adipose tissue will be relative, you know, throughout the body. And when I say adipose tissue for some of us that maybe are not in the science field, you know, the, the big parts in the middle, if you will. And then we also like to look at how they are breathing and just kind of talking to us. You know, if they're getting every breath out with a great, you know, talking point, and then they just can continue to talk like I can for miles and miles, or do they have to take a pause between everything they say? Is it hard? Is it a lot of work for them? One of the big things that we notice in this population is the obesity that is very much centered in the body, not the ex extremities or the appendages. So central obesity, which is where it is very dangerous because that is the part that really surrounds our visceral organs and causes the most damage. You know, if we have like an apple shape versus a pear shape, the apple shape is the most detrimental to health because that's where all our organs are. You know, our lungs, our heart, our liver, our kidneys, all of the things that we need to live and breathe and be healthy. 
So that that is something that I just initially go in and kind of see. I like that you asked this question because I think so many times as a clinician, we can just go in and just have one look and we we kind of have an idea. We know. But to explain it to a parent or a kiddo is very different. Like, hey, I want to know what you eat. Hey, let me see your hand. I'm just going to push on your skin a little bit to see if it pops back up or it stays down. Excellent. Thank you. What does a nutritional plan for a Duchenne look like and what would it include? Again, I love these questions. This is great. I would love to tell you that there was this beautiful standardized diet for DMD and Becker. And there actually might be. It's called eating healthy. So as we have seen and with the research we have as of now, there is no one particular way to eat that is different than the general healthy recommendations that are introduced from my plate or things like that. It's eat complex carbohydrates, high protein, um, protein that is very lean. So the difference between eating bacon and a chicken breast. And believe me, I do love a good piece of bacon, but we have to think about moderation. Also, thinking about getting those complex carbohydrates in other ways other than just grains. So eating vegetables that are very high in other nutrients, broccoli, asparagus, cauliflower, um, Brussels sprouts. And I know I'm going to say all these things and parents and kiddos are both going to say, oh, no, my kid doesn't eat that. They don't like that. And I get it. And at a later date, we can definitely talk about ways to make those taste just a little bit better with a few seasonings. So it sounds like the definition of healthy eating for someone with Duchenne is the same as it would be for those of us in the general population. Yes. It is about eating real food. If I could give parents one tiny bit of advice that would help one thing, you know, what could I do if I could change one thing in one day? It's pick a food. So let's say your kids eat potatoes, right? They love mashed potatoes. I grew up on a farm. I love mashed potatoes too. But I grew up, my parents never left the peel on a potato. As a mom and as someone that lives this and breathes this, I leave my skins on my potatoes when I mash them. And yes, I still use butter and we use milk, but that's that's our family. So think about a small change. And I think that's where so many families and just people in general get so confused and almost downtrodden, if you will, because they don't know where to start. And there are so many rules and guidelines and I should be doing this or I should be doing that. But in general, it's pick one thing. What is one thing I can do differently? Um, Maybe, you know, for an example, this weekend, my kiddos did not eat super healthy, but it was a fun weekend. We were enjoying, we treated ourselves, but, you know, get back on track. And today it was, hey, eat a good breakfast. And then when you come home for dinner, it's vegetables and and lean, lean meats. Sure. That's great advice. Are there data to support the benefits of one type of diet versus the next with regards to Duchenne? Specifically to Duchenne, I have not seen a lot of research-based evidence on specific diets. We do know that there are correlations between certain 
types of disease state and different types of nutrition or diets. So the Mediterranean diet has been very, very successful in reducing obesity, inflammatory markers. And one of the big, big problems that we have with this population is inflammation. So if we can eat something that really helps decrease that. So, you know, really trying to do something simple as eat from the garden, not the box. So think about real foods. Think about looking at, I'm going to buy an apple versus even the apple that's already peeled with the syrup in a container at your store. And I also try to think about, okay, if your kid will never eat brown rice, maybe they won't, try to do something a little differently. So maybe it's as simple as the ratio. Like, And let's get into math here, if you will. So if you have a cup of rice, do seven-eighths white rice, one-eighth brown rice. And you can start to shift that pattern. And you might not even realize or know it. And your kids probably won't. And it changes the properties of that rice blend because you're adding more nutrition. The same thing for other items. This weekend, we had macaroni and cheese. I put peas and carrots and green beans, and I think I even threw some broccoli in there. But because it was in the macaroni and cheese, it was better received by my children. Sounds amazing. I think that's a great idea. And it's really about not eliminating the things that we enjoy, but augmenting them with those foods that are healthier. Why is maintenance of adequate nutrition and body weight so important? I love this. Thank you for asking. We have ended up in a place where we either have overnutrition or undernutrition. With that being said, we really want to start from that baseline and maintain or keep it steady. It is so much easier. And as a family, as a person, just as me, it's easier to do what I've always done versus make change because change is hard. And that is what truly has to happen with nutrition and changing your eating habits. It is behavioral change. And we might talk about this in a minute, but it's familial, family nutrition change. Could you describe how healthy eating contributes to cognition and behavior? Let's take an example for each of us. You know, just take a minute and think about midday. You're hungry and you need that snack. You're dragging, you're tired. It's it's after lunch, but it's not quite go home time and you're not at dinner and you have that little kind of downtime. You know, you just don't feel great. Think about eating a Snickers or a candy bar in general or some chips and you feel good for about a minute and then you're tired again. So think about taking a snack that has a lean protein and a carbohydrate mix and the difference that makes in the way you feel. So some of those examples are take a piece of a string cheese and some carrots or Take a peanut butter or a nut butter if you don't do peanut butter in your home and apple slices. Look at a different type of cracker. If your kids love crackers, love the crunch, can we change from a regular cracker that we'd normally eat to a whole grain? What are some of the common nutritional deficits you've seen in patients with BMD? 
I think vitamin D is the biggest. That's somewhat standard of care. We really focus on getting vitamin D supplementation. And then with that is calcium. Because without adequate calcium in your body, the vitamin D can actually not do what it's supposed to do, if you will. Also, they don't get enough fiber. And fiber comes from natural sources such as eating the peels on vegetables and fruits, eating foods that are whole grains versus white grains. And I know we had talked about the difference between white and brown rice. We can really think of it as white rice basically turns to sugar immediately into your body. Brown rice takes a little bit longer. He's got just a little bit more to give your body before it breaks down. So you feel full longer you feel satiety. And that's that big word for your belly feels good and you you don't want to go get another snack because it, it, you are happy, you're content, you feel good. And I think also something that a lot of times we don't talk about in this community is water intake. And that comes twofold in multiple, multiple realms. I talk with patients. I talk with my kiddo. I talk with practitioners about why why are we not getting adequate fluid? And, you know, I, I think that this is definitely a time for another podcast or something like that if, if you want. But if we aren't drinking enough, we're not going to the bathroom as often. And if you have to depend on somebody else to help you for some of those things, you probably are going to manage what you can do and control what you can do. So it's very, very common. What are some of the collateral issues associated with poor nutrition in DMD? For instance, what are the consequences of obesity? Yes, I think that some of those big collateral damages are, number one, the extra weight that is on that body affects, one, the caregiver in terms of being able to help that child if they have already become non-ambulatory. To if that child is already ambulatory, think about adding a 50-pound backpack on your back and how much more difficult it is to walk up the stairs or to sit and stand up. Also, we have to really think about long-term care and implications of heart disease, high triglycerides, blood glucose levels. There are so many issues that are standard with the general population. In terms of that, this is no different. Obesity is so difficult to combat and understand in all realms. If it wasn't, we would already have a cure. We would have figured it out. Everybody would be living their best life at their ideal body weight, and we wouldn't have this issue. But so many different factors play into this. So we have to think about maintaining weight. And I do so much of my research and so much of what I talk about on overnutrition because I see so many pediatric kids. I don't work with adult populations very often. But on the flip side, there comes a time in the Becker and the DMD world where Things change and where our kiddos and this population kept becoming overly fed and they had overnutrition as an issue, they have the alternate where now undernutrition is a problem and we can't get enough calories in. So that's where we have to change into diet, soft mechanical diet. And this is where, you know, having a dietitian on your team is so important where 
you might not know this as a parent. It's, hey, we need to cut our food very small. We need to, you know, uh, think about adding a gravy, adding a sauce, adding something where it's moist so it's easier to chew, it's easier to swallow. And as the disease progresses, these are some of the things that we really need to focus on. That's great. What is the meaning of BMI? Uh, What are the common misconceptions and why is BMI important? That's a really great question. Thank you. So BMI actually stands for body mass index. And this has been a term that's been around for a while. And there are some significant factors that affect BMI in terms of different populations. BMI doesn't really take into account muscle mass. And one of the things that we find within this population is the decrease in muscle mass happens very early on and frequently throughout the disease progression. There are different ways that we can assess what the body composition looks like. So fat mass versus fat-free mass. So there are different tools we can use that can show you basically what your body looks like in terms of bone density, fat-free mass, fat mass, water, and all of those are very important because we know bone density decreases as these boys progress. Fat mass is replacing fat-free mass. So basically that fat-free mass is muscle. So knowing what that looks like helps us determine standard of care and what we should be doing. And again, this is so individualized and that is why seeing a dietitian or an endocrinologist or someone in your clinic that has a great view and thought process on how to look at these issues is very important. When doing these evaluations, is there a way to distinguish between the fibrofatty infiltration that occurs in the muscle and the adipose tissue collection on the visceral organs? Yes. And I think that that's where those scans and the different things that we have in clinical practice can really become a helpful tool, such as the DEXA, where we can truly look at what that body looks like. We can see bone mass, we can see fat mass, we can see even water mass. You know, we can look at an x-ray or an even like DEXA and see what is in the the stomach, in the bowel. And I think that is an extreme, an extremely important part of standard of care. And that is where endocrinologists come in very, very helpful in our clinic, additionally, as well as the standard of care that we are already practicing. Excellent. Thank you. How can caregivers balance appropriate exercise and diet among those with DMD that they care for? I think that's the golden question. The most important thing is doing what they can tolerate in terms of exercise. So you don't ever want to push someone with DMD to the limit where they have had exhaustion or muscle fatigue or muscle failure because where a typical person that's muscles and their dystrophin is working correctly they have muscle breakdown and then they have muscle buildup. A person with DMD or Becker, they don't have that because they're missing that dystrophin in their body. So it breaks down and we don't build up again. And that's actually a really, really hot topic and a good question between a physical therapist and practitioners. You know, different clinics have different views. But from what we really hear in our clinic is, Do what your kiddo can tolerate. If they love swimming and they're still able to swim, let them do it. In terms of nutrition, it is doing the standard that we've set out, 
with my plate and really focusing on just getting real food. If anything, if I could tell people my magic secret is eat real food, eat food that does not come out of a box or a bag. That's great. What support and resources exist for caregivers who are eager to improve their child's nutrition? That is a great question. Anytime you have questions or you need help, if you're going to a multidisciplinary clinic, you can contact your providers there and they can give you some resources for dietitians or nutritionists in that area. Also, you can always look out for the dietetic organization that credentials dietitians and nutritionists across the U.S., the Eat Right Foundation, or do a Google search for RDLD dietitians in your state. Many will pop up, and then you can look to see if some are covered by insurance, some are not. But so many times, people are willing to help. And I think that that's one of the most beautiful things I found within this community and this population is people want to help, and they want to succeed, and they want other families to succeed. I think it's always important to emphasize how critical thinking and information literacy play a role Mm -hmm. in information gathering. Um, To that end... What educational gaps would you like to see addressed with regards to nutrition in DMD? And what type of research would you like to see take place in the coming years? Yes, there are so many things. And I don't, how much time do we have left? Like four hours? Um, in, in, in all honesty, no, I think that there is so much need. And one of the things that I would really, really like to see is looking at specific patient populations and diet-specific intervention. You know, there are different organizations and different companies that are doing amazing research, but it's been a minute since we really have focused on nutrition as a whole in the Becker and Duchenne muscular dystrophy realm in terms of human research. We've done some things in mice. We've really, we have some great translational things, but We, I think, sometimes forget about all the things we could do in this small scale in terms of disease management. That's fantastic. What role does the gastrointestinal microbiome play in digestion of food and absorption of nutrients? It plays a huge role. I don't think anybody would deny that. And I think it's a really interesting question within this population because there is such a problem with constipation and diarrhea. We kind of go from one extreme to the other. It's like nobody wants to talk about those things. But on my end, one of the things I really suggest is water, you know, water and fiber. So getting the fiber you need. And I think that's honestly one of the bigger problems in some of the issues with these kiddos. But just looking clinically at the population, they don't drink enough water, um, or they're drinking caffeinated beverages that act as a diuretic where they aren't keeping the water that they need and they are not eating foods that are high in fiber. So why? And that's the question, like, why aren't they doing it? They're not doing it because these boys, these young men, are very dependent on help from other people. So what happens when I drink water after water and I am, you know, drinking a soda that has caffeine in it and then I have coffee and I have to go to the bathroom. I can go to the bathroom. 
if I am dependent on somebody else, what am I probably going to do to try to control my situation as best I can? I'm going to limit the things that I know cause having to go to the bathroom or having to, to need some help. So those on not necessarily what you're talking about, like the microbiome. And I think there are issues and people can talk about, you know, probiotics or things like that. But if everybody ate the way they were supposed to, we wouldn't need supplements. We wouldn't need those things. And to your point a moment ago, how do eating habits tend to change as boys enter adulthood? And are nutritionists considered during that transition of care? Yes, they do change significantly. So it's almost like two spikes. You think about the the younger boys' diagnosis, most of them, you know, now earlier, but five to 10, there's this big kind of weight gain typically. And then as the disease progresses, muscles deteriorate. We always just think of muscles like our arms, our legs, but that is included in our intestines, our bowels, our heart, our esophagus, like our jaw. If it's harder to chew food, are you going to eat those foods that are more difficult to eat or do you want to eat those foods that are easier? So if it's hard to chew steak with a group of people, you might not eat the steak if that's a hard thing to do as an older patient. So then you miss that meal. Are you going home and are you eating a supplemental meal at that point? Probably not. So there are so many determinants of health in this progression of disease. So we have to make sure they maintain a weight. And you said something earlier, which I really liked, weight maintenance. If we could just stay on the course, you know, in general, keep everybody steady. You know, yeah, you'll have your ups, your downs, your ups. But if you just look at your actual static, go from A to B, it looks very linear. That's what we want. But we happen to see this huge jump in weight when they do become non-ambulatory. And this is usually coming into the adult population where we have to start thinking about different issues such as supplemental feeding, whether that's Insure whether that's using foods that we can get on the soft mechanical diet, such as, you know, oatmeal, um, foods that are easier to chew, or even as far as a feeding tube in some circumstances. How important are growth charts in monitoring healthy body weight? That is something else. It really, this hot topics that you're bringing up. I love this. So I would have to say, Anything that is standardized can always be different for the population that is not the quote-unquote standardized population. So for these boys, it does look differently. I think possibly changing the phrasing and the dynamic of growth chart versus growth curve. So really identifying that individual patient. Let's use my son as an example, Tyler. His growth is kind of going up, kind of going down, just very normal. But then you see a giant spike and you're like, what happened there? Or a giant decline. That's very concerning. And that's where you get like errors and you don't know if somebody didn't calculate right or did we weigh right? You know, sometimes I really want to tell families, make sure that when your kiddo's getting weighed, if he's in his wheelchair, he doesn't have his 7,000 pound backpack on and doesn't have different things that he normally would have on. So really standardizing the process on our end. But I think it's more beneficial to the practitioner and the family to look at the 
standard for that individual person. We do know that a lot of times boys with DMD are shorter in stature. They typically have a higher fat mass versus lean mass. So to compare an almost 13-year-old boy that has DMD to a normalized, you know, quote-unquote normal boy that is 13 that's playing football and, you know, eating whatever he wants – no, I, I don't think that that's a great option because it's not going to look the same. And then, you know, what do you do? You have these two very, very different populations and you try to standardize them and you can't. Is there a point at which you would become more aggressive with your weight management strategies? Absolutely, yes. And I always tell people, if you see that big growth uh, or the big jump in the the chart or the growth curve, if, if it looks like my kid gained 20 pounds from his uh, visit, six months ago, that's something I need to be concerned of. Same thing with 20 pounds under. And a lot of times these individual appointments within the multidisciplinary clinic are six months apart. So we see these kids regularly. So for the most part, six months, usually we can get a hold of things. But let's say a kid comes in and he's very overweight and we start to talk about some things and we start to monitor. Then as a dietitian, I feel like the monitoring needs to be more than just every six months. And that's something that you can work with your clinic, uh, whether it's the multidisciplinary clinic or you see a pediatrician or a practitioner, they can help you find a way to get those visits approved for that dietitian to monitor and help. Because it's just like anything else. If you're doing it for six months and you think it's working and then somebody tells you it's not working and they tell you to make all these changes, that's hard. You're saying, okay, well, could I not have just known six months ago? So I, I think that that's important. Thank you. So when the child is of like school age, how important is it to like for IEPs and, and such in, in another context or another capacity, but with regards to nutrition, how do you manage that when they're outside of the house? How do you, how do you deal with that when, you know, they're under someone else's care or at the birthday party or, you know? Oh, that is a, that actually is really, really interesting. I'm glad you asked that because that's a question I get a lot from parents. It's not always like the birthday parties and the the stuff with that. It's the school because, and again, I live in Arkansas, so things are done a little differently. But a lot of times rewards are treats. It's a candy or, you know, a sucker or something. And we actually had to talk to the school about, and I don't remember if we actually put it in his IEP or if it was a discussion with his teachers about, hey, when Tyler gets a treat, can we do a pencil or can we do erasers? So I think as a parent, go into those meetings and discuss those things. It would be the same thing as if your kid had a food allergy. Like if your kid had a peanut allergy, a teacher wouldn't give them peanuts. So being very upfront and talking about it and explaining, and I think explaining also to your child and the teacher in a way that it's not like he's being punished because he doesn't get this. That's great advice. Are there any final topics that you'd love to discuss or any anything we haven't covered today? It's just more about really the takeaways. So balance and really listening to your family and what you guys do and working together to create what works for you. If it looks differently than somebody else's plan or care or journey, that's okay. And I think that that's 
so important for families to hear. And also as a family member to be able to talk to their practitioner about that and to say, here's what we do. And it maybe differs a little bit than what you're saying or how that works, but the advocation for yourself, your family, for your kid is important. And then really just focusing on all the other aspects of that. It's social, it's emotional, it's mental, it's it's not just physical. It's all of the components that we have to consider as practitioners, as teachers, as just regular people on the street, as a friend, everybody that comes in contact with this person in their life. Other super good advice that I have in terms of nutrition, you can want them to eat as well as you want them to eat, but they might not and it's okay. So, and I think especially moms and, you know, the occasional dad, but it's always my kid won't do this. And I'm like, that's okay. And I think if anything that I've learned is the grace and the ability to just kind of let stuff go and be like, well, it is, it is what it is, I guess, you know, maybe tomorrow, tomorrow he might eat it tomorrow. He might not. And I think that that's it. If we all would try a little harder to be empathetic. And that is so easy to say it, but really be empathetic. I mean, sometimes I really have to think, especially as you're you're moving, you're frustrated because everything is going on, but you're like, what if I really was in this situation? What if I was sitting in this wheelchair? How much harder is it? How much different does it look? You'd mentioned the importance of mentorship earlier. I think that it can't be overstated in this community and having someone like you in the community to act as a mentor with regards to nutrition and all the things given your unique perspective uh, is incredible. Uh, what are your professional research interests? So one of my big things right now, it is rare disease and nutrition and DMD. But I love family dynamics. So as I said, I'm a behavioral health scientist. So finding out why people do what they do and how they do it and all the stuff that makes you choose something I think is fascinating. So community, public health, and just basically behavioral health science. So how can I help you figure out what you need to do on your path with nutrition? That's the big thing. And I I love practicing. I love meeting with people and trying to help them figure out where they are and where they want to be. Because I think, honestly, if you just ask the right questions, people tell you what they want. It's just listening and finding out, I guess, how to ask the right questions and how to ask the questions in a way that make people feel good and not bad or sad or disheartened because this is a difficult topic. It's, you know, I have so many clients that don't have a disease. They don't have a disability and it's just as hard for them to try to lose weight as it is for this population. So, you know, kind of bringing it back together that we're all sort of in this together. I think it's so important and these conversations are delicate and it's very, you know, it's, it's critical to negotiate them in a delicate way. My sister says this all the time with her people, find your tribe, find your people, your tribe. And that doesn't mean they all have to be DMD warriors or they all have to look like you or think like you, but 
What are the type of people that make you feel good about yourself? What are the type of people that you can say all the things you want to say to that they're not going to judge you? They're going to be like, pull up a chair. I'm going to be here to listen to you. And I think that honestly could be my biggest piece of advice is find your tribe. I love it. I can't thank you enough for joining us today. This was an outstanding conversation. I feel like I could speak to you for days about this and the importance of nutrition obviously can't be overstated uh, within all communities. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Again, I could probably talk to a, a door if it would stand there long enough. So I appreciate it and agreed. I think the more we can discuss it and get the word out there, the better we all will be. Thank you again, Dr. Fawcett. It was a very interesting discussion, and I hope it will support our listeners in the Duchenne community throughout their journey. Finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode. We hope you have found it relevant and informative. Make sure you join us for the next episode. You can subscribe to the podcast series at ptcbio.com or your favorite podcast channel.